And then as you're doing that, uh, if you have a Bible or access to scriptures, go ahead and find your way to Joshua chapter 7. Uh, we'll get there in, in just a few minutes and look at a handful of verses there. But as we prepare to kind of step into kind of this next season of who we are as a church, um, today has uh, been marked on my calendar for probably about four months. Um, and it's not because any other Sunday was less significant or less important than, than today. But about four months ago, we had a particular service, a gathering here on a Sunday morning where the Lord had been speaking to us uh, images of water and different things about what was going on in the lives of people. And so we took a Sunday, kind of extended our worship time, and just let the Holy Spirit kind of unpack those things in our lives. And, and one of the things that kind of had emerged that, that morning was a particular picture that was given uh, of our city, of our valley where our valley was filled with Asherah poles. Now, in the Old Testament, Asherah pole was a, a sign of idol worship or false god worship, and, and Israel would buy into that periodically. But, but this picture had our valley just covered with these Asherah poles, and then this mighty rushing river comes through and just sweeps away those idols and those poles. And as we were kind of unpacking that the mor- that morning, the Lord showed me that, that, and he didn't highlight a particular person or group of people, but that, that within uh, our church, there are people who are hanging on to those poles. That as the, the, the flow of the Holy Spirit comes and he wants to bring freedom and forgiveness through Jesus and his death on the cross, that some of us are like, I just can't let go of this thing. I got to hold on to it because it's so important. We just can't see life beyond this thing that we're holding on to. And I knew even in that moment, and that's four months ago, the Lord was saying there's going to be a time where you as a church family, we're going to have to walk through dealing with idols in our lives. Well, that day has come. So either, either it's, it's uh, I've been excited about this day or dreading about this day, and I'll tell you why. Uh, if you've been a part of Antioch, you, you know that, that our approach to following Jesus is we, we don't go to the extremes of either kind of range of things. But, but one of the things I think sometimes that we can miss is that we don't, we don't believe that there's a demon behind every bush and that, this, that Satan's behind every bad activity in our life. But I am, forget, I am convinced that he is alive and well. And he does influence, and he does infiltrate, and he does cause us to make decisions and do things that we don't want to do. And in this particular area, we're not dealing with a surface area when we talk about idols. We are dealing with a core issue in all of us. And it's a core issue that the enemy loves to wreak havoc in. He loves to come along and to set up things that, that look innocent and that they look that they don't, they wouldn't come across. In fact, when an idol enters into your life, it doesn't announce itself as an idol. I know, newsflash. Because it's, it's much more subtle, and it happens over time. In fact, this morning, what we're going to talk about, the, the whole series is entitled Undivided, Dealing with the Things that Keep Us from God. Because idols, whether you know it or not, keep us from God. And we might think, oh, I'm really close to Jesus. But every time you go to advance, every time you go to press forward, every time you, you want to continue to progress in your walk with Jesus, something always holds you back. You always find yourself back at the same place that you felt like you started before. And that's because there's something in your life that has yet to be dealt with. And many times it's an idol. And some idols have to be dismantled, and some of them just need to be destroyed. And so as we walk through this this series, be aware, okay, because I even felt this first service. Be aware that as we deal with idols, there's usually one of two reactions that we have. We either downplay what might be an idol in our life and say, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Or the enemy will influence us and allow our pride to blind us to say, in fact, we'll push back against the uh, thought of an idol and almost get offended that someone would actually think that there's something wrong in our lives, even though deep down inside we know there's something seriously wrong. So we'll downplay it or we'll react strongly with pride. So watch those responses as we walk through this journey together because the enemy wants to keep you right where you're at. 
He doesn't want you to advance. Jesus has come to set you free, and that means he is the one that is worthy of your affection, your attention, and your focus in life, and the enemy will do anything in his power to steal that away so that you don't follow Jesus. So I wanted you to understand as we walk through, this is a significant, important season, not just a series, but a season for our church. People have been praying. I was praying intensely this week, more than I have in a long time, just as we're coming to this Sunday, that God would break through and push back the darkness so that we could experience his light and his power in our life. So, so with that in mind, as we, we walk through today, is, is we're going to talk about this kind of an intro to kind of what we're going to unpack together. But talking about idolatry and realizing that it's not quite what we think it is. We have kind of an, an idea and a definition. In fact, sometimes when we use the word idol, if you've been in church for a while, we go back to the Old Testament concept of somebody bowing down to like a physical like statue or some kind of an icon, and we're like, that's idolatry, so I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm not bowing down to anything. Or, and and you, you think in the physical terms, but idols come much more subtly. In fact, uh, a great resource as we're walking through this series together, one of the best books I've ever read on idols is a book called Counterfeit God, uh, by Tim Keller. You can go on Amazon and get it, and, and we'll put some information together in the next couple weeks and get access to it. But he really challenges a lot of the way we think about idols and how they work in our life. In fact, this is what he says when, when, when asked, what is an idol? He said, it is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And then he puts it this way. He said, many times an idol in our life can be a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And that's why I think sometimes you think, oh, idols are bad. Idols are bad. Yeah, they are, but they don't come in a bad form. They come in a good form. They come in the form of something that we'll, we're, we're receiving. We're thinking this is a great thing. But when that great thing that's a good thing becomes an ultimate thing and takes the place of God, then it becomes an idol and it wreaks havoc in our life. So with that understanding, in just a few moments, we'll get to Joshua chapter 7. But I want to start with just some simple things of how do we identify potential idols in our life. Some things that we have to ask ourselves and really review ourselves this morning about what we might see honestly in our lives. And so how do we identify an idol? Answer these questions in your life. Here's the first one. What or who do you think most about in your life? Just, just pause for a moment and think about who or what do you think most about in your life? What captures your imagination? What do you dream about? Sometimes we don't think about what, what's happening, but, but what happens is we start to think about a person or an experience or a substance that comes in the form of something that might be good that we want to be a part of our lives, but it starts to capture our attention in such a way that we dream about it, that if we actually get there, then we'll be satisfied, then we'll be happy, and that destination isn't necessarily where God is leading us. And so think about that for a moment. What, what captures your attention? What's that thought? What's that dream that's out there that you feel, if I ultimately get to seeing that dream come true, then I will finally be happy? And when we think that way, what we're saying is, I can't possibly be happy right now. I can't be satisfied right now in what God's doing. I have to be there because there is better than here, not realizing that God is here and there. And the point is not there. The point is God working in us now, God satisfying our soul now more than an idol can have you ever had that dream that's always the place that's better than where you are right now, that you're always thinking through? Kim and I, when, when we first started in ministry together, we had a running joke that actually stopped being a joke and became a serious reality. And we would go through difficult times in, in ministry or difficult challenges with people. We always would kind of laughingly walk away from a meeting or a service and we'd say, ah, you know what, let's just chuck it and move to the Northwest. Let's just move to Seattle or let's move to Oregon because people up there have to be better than Southern California, have to be nicer because God loves Oregon and loves Washington. It was that place that was the dream, like everything's perfect in the Northwest. Anybody have that kind of place? 
And it's always somewhere else other than where you are. Now, after a while, that became something that started to drive my life. It wasn't a joke anymore, to the point where I actually went out and got a map of Oregon and Washington. I put it on a phone board. I put it in my living room, and for two weeks, every night I would come home, and I would put little push pins where all the four-square churches were in, in Oregon and Washington. Because I was going to find the gap where we were going to go plant a church, and we were going to change the world for Jesus in the Northwest. And it took me two weeks, and I got to the end of it, and I looked at this, all these little push pins all over this, this, these two states and this map, and the Lord said, what are you doing? I haven't called you to go to the Northwest. I've called you to be in Ventura. And I remember the Lord kind of getting my attention, like, you're being tempted to go do something that I haven't called you to do because you're not looking for me in this moment to be satisfied. You're looking for people and a church experience to satisfy you, and it never will. Now, the funny part was, about five years later, guess where we moved? And we didn't really want to go there because we had realized that's not where God's calling us. But at the time, then God said, now that I've rinsed that idol out of your life, guess where you're moving to? The Northwest. So the dream for me now is Hawaii. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, second, second question to ask is in identifying an idol, who or what most captures your time and resources? Now, most of us think, well, nothing really. I mean, I'm, I, I, I just do this, and this is my life, and I spend a little bit of money here, and, and I, I do this, I go to church, I work. And, but just, just think about this for a moment. What, what really actually dominates your time in terms of when you have time or you have money to spend, where does it go? Because we all have schedules, we all have jobs, we all have living expenses, we all have things that are a normal part of the rhythm of life. But where does our time when we have time and where does our money when we have money go? Where's the focus? If you don't know, then do two simple things today, which is kind of scary. When you go home today, look at your bank statement. Look at your checking account. Look at, look at where, where you're writing checks to. Look at where you're swiping your card to. And then look back, take a big step back and say, okay, what do I value in life? What am I looking to that will somehow satisfy my soul? Look at your calendar and see outside the normal rhythms of life, what are you spending your time doing? You know, some people will discover that it won't be like I'm doing anything bad other than I'm watching a lot of TV. Hmm. But TV can't be an idol, can it? Absolutely it can. It can be an idol. It can be something that grabs your attention and pulls you away from what God wants you to do. Why? That's why there's this thing called binge-watching now. That's how Netflix and Hulu and everything else lives. They live in this, you don't need to watch one episode, you need to watch 20 episodes. I've been there. I, we binge-watched Lost. Anybody remember Lost? And I was so mad that I wasted 40 hours of my life watching a stupid show where everybody was dead at the end. So don't watch it, okay? Spo- uh, that's the, spoiler alert, sorry if you watched it and now you realize you don't need to watch it. Don't waste your time, okay? But just think about that for a moment. Where do you spend your time and your money? Because that may be the thing that has your heart, that has your attention, that has your, your, you're drawn to it. I had a friend that he and I were meeting in a small group for a long time, and we actually would meet at Starbucks once a week. And he, he really felt convicted about the Lord asking him this question, like, what am I spending my life doing? What am I doing with my money? And at the time, he was making really good money. And so he goes, he goes it scared me. I, I went home this month, and I look back over the last month to see where I spent my money. And he said, I was shocked. He goes, I am spending between two and $300 a month on Starbucks alone. Now, some of you are going, so am I right now. Is there anything wrong with that? Now, get me. Starbucks is not inspired by the devil, and it's not a bad thing. But when that becomes a driving force, and he realized every single day of his life, he had to go to Starbucks. Everybody just couldn't function. He was the kind of guy, when he walked in, everybody knew his name, and it wasn't Cheers. Everybody knew his name, and they knew his order because he was there every single day. 
And so he realized, in fact, after that, we kind of moved, tried to change locations and didn't have our small group in Starbucks anymore because it was a huge addiction for him. And he didn't realize that until he looked where he was spending his time and his money. So what captures your time and your resources? And the third question, who or what causes you the most disappointment? Now, you might not think in terms of this category, in terms of an idol, but, but think about this for a moment. When you and I have an experience or we have a person that we look to for approval and satisfaction and, and, and contentment in our life, then when they don't come through and they disappoint us, that disappointment is deep. It could crush us. Because what we've done unintentionally is we put on an experience or we put on an individual what only God can provide, and therefore we've asked that person or that experience to be God in our life. That's dangerous. Can you imagine if, what it would be like if you put that on an individual, or your spouse, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a best friend, that you unintentionally put on them a requirement that only God can fulfill in your life? You're asking them to satisfy your needs, to make you happy, to fulfill your life, and only God can do that. Please, I'm sure if the person realized that you were idolizing them, they'd say, please don't do that to me, because I can't be God to you. But we do it to people all the time. We get our focus, and we, we, we get our, our focus on a person or an experience, and what we end up doing is we end up getting to a place where we are disappointed with our life because we're disappointed with experiences and people. And many times what we're driven for is if that one person will like me, if that one person will approve of my life, if that one person will accept me, which is one of the idols that we're going to talk about. You know one of the idols that we have and we don't even know it is love. Love is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing that costs us everything. And not talking about love of God, we'll talk about that. But we are in love with the person and we are driven to be with that person and they become the end all. We're not realizing that what God gave us is a good thing has become the ultimate thing and that person's now taking God's position in our life. They've become an idol. You can do that. I, I confessed about a year and a half ago, I discovered my wife had become an idol. And then when I told her, she said, I feel the same way about you. Because you get to this point where you realize you're putting everything in for this person. And then you're expecting from them to fulfill everything in your life that only God can do that. There is no human being that can do that. Only God. And then there's a, a fourth reality. And that's this. To identify an idol, ask yourself this question. What or who can you not live without? Just think about that for a moment. Now, obviously, we, we, we all experience loss when somebody close to us passes away, but, but there are certain people, in fact, as a pastor, I've walked so many people through grief and watching you lose a, a spouse or a son or a daughter or a parent and walking through that and, and the difficulty of that. But, but the, for some of us, we've actually said these words about an individual. If you died, I don't know if I could live. Maybe you didn't say it, but you felt it. And if you said that, even though you know that as, a, as a, someone who's in love, you feel like this is something that comes out of your passion for them, what you've just done is you've tried to make them God in your life. Because what you're saying is that they're more important than God because if they were to die, somehow God is not powerful enough to bring you comfort in that moment of loss. Because if they are your idol, guess what? When they're laying in that coffin, your idol can't get up and comfort you. Only God can. But think about that for a moment. What can you not live without? Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's an experience or a substance that you know if it was absent from your life, you don't think you could function. You couldn't live on. You would have no will to live. You would lose that. What is that? That's an idol. That's an idol that's grabbed your heart and your attention and pulled you away from God. And, and you're looking to that idol to do what only God can do in your life. And so think about that as you process through. If it's a job, if it's your money, if it's your home, whatever it is. If it was gone, you would lose the will to live. See, 
God supersedes all of that in our life. And he has to be the one that is sufficient for us. So with those, that understanding, would you go ahead and find your way to, to Joshua chapter 7. We're going to look at a handful of verses here. And, and to kind of give you some context of what, what we're going to look at. Kind of, to kind of give us some, some understanding of what makes sense here. So Israel's history, they've come out of Egypt. Then we've kind of, even in the last few months in the summer, we talked a little bit about Israel's journey. But they come out of, of Egypt. They're set free. God wants them to go in the promised land. They rebel against him. They end up spending 40 years wandering around. They're back to the promised land again. They get in. Joshua leads them into Jericho. They take this fortified city. It's this great victory. We all kind of know the Bible story of them marching around, around the walls falling. And then the next battle that comes in the promised land is this little town called Ai, which is far less fortified and less secure than Jericho. In fact, it's so insignificant, Joshua doesn't even send the whole army. He just sends a small contingent to go out and says, you can take this city. Well, they go and they get whooped. In fact, some of the guys lose their lives. It doesn't go well. They come back and Joshua is beside himself. He's wondering, God, where in the world have you gone? I don't understand this. We're supposed to just keep steamrolling through the promised land. And now we hit this roadblock in Ai, and it doesn't make sense. And so we pick up the story where Joshua is pouring his guts out before God, not knowing what in the world is happening. So verse 10 of Joshua chapter 7, this goes this. He says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things that have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become, they become devoted for destruction. I will be with them no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, there, uh, therefore, you shall, be, uh, you shall be brought near by the tribes, and the tribes that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Then verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and he brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of Zerites man by man and Zabdi was, or Zabdi was taken, and he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Kami, son of Adi, son of Zariah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to God of Israel, and give him praise, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Is that a sobering passage of Scripture? Can you imagine if you did something that which you thought was in absolute secrecy, there's no way on earth anyone would ever know that you did it, and then God lines up all of your friends and all of your family and all of your church friends and everybody that you know, and then one by one goes through until it ends up with you. That's kind of intimidating, isn't it? So what's going on here? So when they went in to take Jericho, God had given them specific instructions back in, in, in Joshua chapter 6. There are certain things that God said, listen, when you come across these things, and it had to do primarily with precious metals, 
when you come across these things, these are devoted to me and they will go in the treasury. They belong to me. Everything else is your plunder. Everything else that you can take. But these things are devoted for my purpose. So you're not to take them and mix them with your own things. And we're going to see from this as we go to, to the next couple of verses here. You're going to see how Achan takes this journey towards idolatry, which when I read it, he's reading our mail. It is our journey that we end up going down a road, that we end up getting involved in something that becomes an idol and don't even know how we got there. But it just comes one step at a time. And so this journey, look at verse 20. Verse 20, says, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. So now he starts to unpack what he did. He's confessing now. So the first thing, look at, go to verse 21. The first thing that he confesses to is he confesses to distraction. Distraction diverts our attention. So what does he say in verse 21? He says, When I saw among the spoils uh, a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. So he's distracted. Why? Because he's in to fight a battle. He's taken the city, and suddenly these things are presented with him. You know, and when you just think about this for a moment, when, when, when you get distracted by something, and we'll kind of see the progression of this, you have to think about the, the, the logic that, that you seem to lose in the moment when you become distracted from what God's doing. Just think about this. Where in the world is Achan going to wear that cloak? Just think about it. The next Sunday that rolls around, he's going to go to church in his brand new cloak. Hey, look at me. Where'd you get that? Oh, I just found it right? Where is he going to spend the extra money that he just came up with? So he's a poor man, and now he's a rich man? What is he going to do? He's not thinking. Why? Because he's distracted. And this is the thing that's kind of concerning when I read this passage. What was Israel doing? They were being obedient to God. They were doing what? They were fulfilling God's purpose for them. They were taking Jericho, and they were taking that city, and God does this amazing miracle and caused the walls to fall down, and they take this fortified city that no one can take. They're in the process of fulfilling God's purpose, and what happens? the beginning of idolatry creeps in right in the middle of the purpose of God. See, we think that idolatry happens over here where it's bad and dark and evil. No, idolatry happens right in the midst of God's will. See, we think it's separate. It's not. Right in the middle of a great season in your life, you can become distracted by something that will pull you away from God. Remember, it comes as a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing that becomes a devastating thing in your life. It's great intentions. I call it the Costco effect. Anybody gone to Costco lately? Anybody ever tried to go to Costco and buy one thing? Some of you are really disciplined, and you can do it. The rest of us, when you walk in there, you are dead. Because what's going to happen is, whether you are sampling at every corner the little dishes that they prepare for you so you will buy something, or you're walking up and down the aisles and you're looking at These things that if only I had those, then I would be happy, right? And not just one of them. I need 10 of them, right? Because you can't buy one thing at Costco. You have to buy a million of them. And you go through Costco trying to spend 20 bucks, and you walk out the door spending 200, and Costco goes, thank you very much. We are successful. We got you. See, I think that what happens is, is that you're going to Costco for a good reason, because you need something, but you leave Costco buying more than you really wanted to. Why? Because you got distracted, You got distracted by something that you didn't really need, but suddenly in your mind, it became something that you thought that you needed. Can you translate that to life? How many times are you trying to advance with Jesus and something comes along as a distraction and plays with you in a way that it's trying to get your attention to pull your attention away from what God wants to do? Achan was fulfilling the purpose of God and then he got distracted by things that were devoted only to God and took them for himself. Second thing, going on in verse 21. 
not only does he confess distraction, he confesses affection. And affection is what dominates our imagination, what we have affection for. So he actually goes from saying that I discovered these things, and then he says this. He says, then I coveted them. And when, when coveting happens, what, what coveting is, it's not just thinking about, it's not just seeing, it's not just contemplating, it's actually beginning to dream about what your life would be like if you had that thing or that person at all costs. That's what coveting is. It doesn't matter what the cost is to anybody else around me. If I have that thing or that person, this is what my life could look like. This is what's going to make me happy. So I covet and I desire to have that thing and I lose sight of everything around me. That's what he did. All he could see was those shekels and that jacket and what he wanted because he had this idea. He's envisioning this. And I think sometimes what we don't realize is that we are just like Achan. Because what is Achan doing? When he's coveting, he's starting to live out a dream in his mind or he's starting to try to fulfill a narrative that he's writing for his life. Because he's now starting to look at his future differently. Before, he didn't have that cloak. He didn't have that money. But now when he has that money and he has that cloak, his life is going to look like this. And he starts writing out the script in his mind. We do that every single day. In fact, I'm convinced that I've, I've met with enough people and talked with people and know my own nature enough that we all live out a script and a narrative that we've written for our lives. And many times what we try to do is we try to make it God's narrative. You're like, yeah, this is what God wants me to do. And if you were honest with yourself, you're like, no, this is what you want to do. Because you think this narrative, if it's fulfilled, it will make you happy. And that's when God comes along and he starts, he starts tearing away at your narrative or your script that you've written. And you're like, oh, no, 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 wait, God, that's the, what you want me to do with my life. And God's like, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't say that. You said it and you want me to sanctify it. You want me to bless it. But you never asked me what you want me to, what, what was the purpose of your life. And that's when we get this clash. Why? Because that script and that narrative and that dream that's become the idol. It's become more important than what God wants to do in my life. And God comes along with a different script, and his script, what, is a threat to ours. So then there's this battle. And we have to be honest with the script in our brain. We have to be honest with what we think our life's supposed to be. All of us think about our lives in seasons. This is the season we're in, but this next season is going to look like this, or I hope it's going to look like this, and it's going to include this. And that's what we long for. But many times you don't even ask God, God, is that what you want for me? I had a script when I first got into ministry. I had a script because I looked at all the leaders that I looked up to, all the pastors that were successful, and I watched what I saw, certain things about their life, and thought, I want that. And in my mind, the script for my life, when, when, when Kim and I decided to go out and plant a church after being on staff at a church for five years, the script in my life, I can tell you what it was. I had watched successful leaders around me. I'd watched churches grow numerically. I'd watched their influence grow. I watched them get more income. So they went from struggling to having a larger church to having enough money to afford the city they lived in to buying a house to being successful and then being in the same city their entire life. That was the script of my life. That was right here, really all the time. So as I started to to move out into ministry, then I started to realize that script wasn't unfolding. So who do you think I got mad at? God. Because I said, God, didn't you get the memo, this is the script for my life, that you're supposed to fulfill in me, because this is what's going to make me happy, and you want me to be happy, right? Because you're supposed to make me happy. And God kept coming in in different ways and saying, no, you never asked me what the script for your life is. You just informed me what it is. And I didn't realize at the time that had become an idol. I was worshiping an image and a dream that wasn't God's dream for my life. And then I realized when I finally woke up, 
I realized that the purpose and the dream that God had for my life was so much greater than what I could have dreamt of myself because I had to let that thing die. And when I let that thing die, I, if, if Kim were here, she would tell you I became a much more happy person because I wasn't trying to fulfill something that God wasn't wanting to fulfill in my life. He had something completely different. And so many times we covet a different future than what we have. And God says, no, 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 no. Let me give you the dreams because my dreams are always better. And then when we, when we let down, let go, and that's why when we, we follow Jesus, what does he require of us? We have to do what? We have to lose our life, our script, our narrative, what? To find God's and then find true life. Then there's a third reality. So it goes from distraction to affection, and then Achan confesses a deeper level, and that is obsession. He says, and I took them, and see, they are hidden in the inside, or the earth inside the tent with silver underneath. What is obsession? It's when, when what we think determines our actions. We become obsessed with something. Now we're acting out on what we've dreamt of. We're acting out on the narrative. We're acting out on what we've thought. We can't keep it inside anymore. Now it becomes part of our life. It starts to dictate our actions. So Achan gets to this point, and now he's obsessed about these things. Why? Because he's seen a future that he thinks is going to be so much better if he has these things, and now he starts to live it out. He takes action. He starts to do things that he thought he would have never done before. Why? Because he's bought into this lie, this lie that has become an idol to him. Obsession is a dangerous thing. Obsession is when something takes over your life and dominates your life, and no longer are you in control, but that thing or that person is in control of your life. And you might say, oh, no, 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 that, that, that's not in control, but then look at your life. Look at your time. Look at your resources. What has your affection? What dominates your mind? And then you'll start to realize, oh, wow, obsession. Obsession makes us do really stupid, silly things. It makes us do things that we would have never thought we would have done before. Strange kind of snare that unfolded when, when I, Kim and I, just before Kim and I met, when I was my freshman year in college, and uh, there was a girl that, that liked me, and I had no clue that she liked me. In fact, she went beyond like to like a, a serious obsession, and I, had, I was clueless to the whole thing. And she, we had a study group that we were getting together to study for an exam that was coming up, and so there was five of us, and as, the, as a couple days went by, each day one of those other people kept dropping off of the study group. And then when we got to finally the day we were going to study, it was just me and her. And I'm just thinking, okay, well, three other people dropped off. We're going to study. So we studied for a couple hours, and she goes, you know what we should do? We should go see a movie. And I'm like, all right, yeah. Let's go see a movie. So we went to the movie, and of course, when, you, when I showed up there, I thought, I'll be a gentleman. She didn't bring any money anyway, so she was planning on something else. So, so I'm like, okay. And so she goes, you know, I'm really hungry after the movie's over. We should go get dinner. I'm like, well, I'm hungry too. And of course, she didn't bring any money, so I got to pay. So on my way home, after I dropped her off, I thought to myself, that was a date. <laughs> I just paid for a date, and I didn't even know I was on a date. And in her mind, it was full on a date. Because from that point on, I could not shake her. Everywhere... I was, she was there. And it, it, it reached the pinnacle five months later where I was literally, I was trying to distance myself. She was freaking me out just a little bit. <laughs> Kim and I went on our first date. Great date. And so I dropped her off. She was living at the dorms at the time and I was, I was living at home. So I was driving back to Van Nuys from downtown LA area. And so she tells me what happens the next morning. She goes, I had the strangest thing. She goes, I, I went back in the dorms. I went in, I was telling my, my roommate about the date and there's a knock on our door. And so she goes, I opened the door, and it was that, this girl. And she said, did you go on a date with John Amstead tonight? And she, Kim's like, well, yeah, we had a good time. She goes, well, that's fine. She goes, I just want you to know that God told me that I'm going to marry him, so it doesn't matter what you're going to do. I'm like, okay, she's a little freaky, okay? 
And I really distanced myself, and eventually she kind of got the message that I don't know what God she was listening to, but it wasn't my God, because he wasn't telling me the same thing. But she had this, this unhealthy attachment that drove her to do silly things. I mean, why do you walk up to somebody after their first date and say, oh, you shouldn't date them because God told me that I'm going to... That's obsession. That's a little strange, okay? Usually God doesn't work that way. He might in some rare cases, but not normally. Obsession makes us do those things. Think about your life and some of the, the, the lowest moments where you made the worst decisions in your life. You may have been obsessed with something or something, somebody that you were driven to go after, and you look back and think, why in the world did I do that? Because something other than God had grabbed your attention, your affection, and your life. And then the final reality of what this leads to in our life, and this is where we have to really be careful, is that what ends up happening to Achan is destruction. Eventually, an idol, if, if left unchecked, will bring devastation. It'll destroy us. And that's why we have to take these things seriously. So let me read the outcome for Achan. So Achan has confessed this to Joshua, and obviously it's because God has highlighted. He didn't come willingly. But look at verse 22, and then we'll read to verse 26. It says, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerai, the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them out to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of this place is called the Valley of Achor. Oof. That gets serious in a hurry, doesn't it? What's going on there? Some are thinking, well, that's not just. That's not fair. Where's the forgiveness? Jesus is going to die on the cross eventually. Why couldn't God forgive Achan's sin in that moment? Because Israel had entered into a covenant with God, and God had given them what they had given, given them. And he had, for the last 40 years of Israel's history, they had been idolaters. They had followed their own path and their own way, and God kept bringing them back and kept bringing them back and kept bringing them back. Forty years till a generation passes away. Now he's bringing them into the promised land, not because of them, but despite them. And so as they first enter in, God is cleaning house. Why? Because he knows if they continue to be idolaters, they're never going to get where he's going to lead them to. And by the way, I'm convinced that God's grace covers a person like Achan. I'm not going to determine where Achan's eternity is, but I know God's grace covers him, even in his idolatry. But I think the message of what we see from Joshua chapter 7 is that dealing with idols is a serious matter. Because what happens is it it will eventually destroy your life, and here's the thing about idols. It doesn't just affect you. It will affect and influence other people around you. It was one of those things, and you read this especially through the Old Testament, where you know, it's the parents mess up, and then the donkeys and the oxen and the kids all get thrown in. It's like, thanks, Dad, good move, right? Why? Because one man's sin had influenced and impacted so many others. We have to think about that in our lives. Idolatry is a serious matter. I want to close with this. In fact, the worship team, you can come and join me. We're going to sing one last song together. But, but I want to close with a story that, that I think underscores for us that idolatry is devastating. But when you follow Jesus, idolatry is not a dead end. It's not. In fact, idolatry can be forgiven and you can be set free from it. So kind of going back again to my college days, I had a roommate when I was living in the dorms, a good friend of mine, and we 
we connected and got to know each other, and, and um, we both kind of shared our journeys of what we felt like God had called us to in our lives, and we're trying to live that out, going to Bible college to learn about the scriptures and ministry, and, and so as the year was kind of going on, I, he started dating a girl at the school, and they really got close, and, and to the point where I didn't see him around much anymore. He wasn't in his room much. He didn't seem to be around campus. He just was with her like 24-7. If he wasn't in class, he was with her. And, and going to a Bible college, you have a code of ethics that you sign on to. And part of that code of ethics is that, that you can't have any sexual activity with anybody unless you're married. And, and that's something we all agreed to. Well, his affection and his drive to be with this girl, they, they became so close that eventually they did. They were sexually active together. And and eventually that came out, and then the result for that was that they actually had to step away from school. And I remember walking through that and, and, and realizing what had happened and, and watching the progression of his life where the conversations that we would have were about what God wanted to do with his life and the people he was going to reach and the world he was going to change. And then those conversations started to die down, and the only conversations we had was about this girl, how amazing she was and how he was going to marry her, and that was the drive of his life. And then eventually she became so important to him that she became more important than God in his life. And here's what happened in the story. After he was basically kicked out of school, he went back home. And I had one phone call with him after that point, and he was bitter and angry. He was upset at the school, and he wondered, why, where's the forgiveness? Why didn't you, I, I sinned, you should have cared for me, knowing all along that he signed his name on the dotted line and said, listen, if, if, if you can't deal with this area in your life, you're gonna need to take some time to deal with it. That's why he had to step back from school. So that was the last conversation I had. That, that was back when I was in college, just a long time ago. I haven't had contact with him, but he was mad and bitter and upset. And he got a, a job doing, working uh, for a company, installing windows, nothing wrong with installing windows. But that's not the call that God gave him for his life. And as far as I know, he never recovered. She, on the other hand, fully submitted to the process, confessed her sin, was broken over it, took a... a a break from being at school, but then the next year went through a process. She came back to school. She finished her degree. She married the most amazing guy who's a chaplain for the Air Force today, one of the leaders in our movement and for, in our Foursquare family. And they have kids and they have a great marriage. And she's following Jesus and she's living out the purpose that God gave her for her life, even though way back when she had a guy as an idol who took over the, the primary place in her life for a season, but it wasn't the end for her because she was willing to lay down that idol. She was willing to walk away from that, to say, God, you are more important than anyone or anything in my life, and I choose to follow you. Now she has the life that God had given her. But in that moment, she was convinced, this is the only life I can have. This is the one that's gonna make me happy. And God said, no, I have something better for you. Now, it may not be in the sexual arena, maybe it's something completely different, but you know there's been a moment in your life where you've compromised and you've sold out and you've given yourself fully to someone, something, some experience, and you know that in that moment you've now turned your back for, away on God and you've said, this is now most important. Even though you didn't articulate it, you know it's become the most important thing in your life. The good news today is that God, in a loving way, sacrifices idols. He dismantles idols in our life. And then the beauty of that is he doesn't leave us in a vacuum to try to figure things out on our own. He says, you don't need an idol because you have a God. And a God is always better than an idol. And so today, as we're going to sing in just a moment, I'm going to ask you, and just, I'm going to ask you just right now, even close your eyes, and just allow the Holy Spirit 
and he may have already done that. He's highlighting at least one, maybe a couple things that, that again, could be that thing that has stolen your heart from God. And maybe along the way, that what's happened even in the last 30 minutes is you've downplayed. The enemy's saying, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. It's not really an idol. Other people have idols. You don't have idols. That means it's probably an idol. Or maybe in the last 30 minutes, there's something inside you that's risen up your pride that says, no, 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 that's not me, that's me. And you become even a little defensive. Would you realize that that's the enemy at work and he's wanting to keep you from God? This series is a journey of dealing with the things that keep us from God. God says, I love you enough not to allow you to be in the state that you're in, but to dismantle the idols in your life so that you can be undivided, that you can be in unity with me, that you can be one with me, that you can be in a relationship that breathes life into your life. But you've got to let him have access to your idols today. You've got to allow him to destroy the Asherah poles, to allow the, the water of his spirit to wash over you so that you are clean and you are set free. So in these next few months, would you allow him to come and just to bring life to you as you now turn your attention back to him. So Lord Jesus, as we we give ourselves to you today, we surrender those things that we may be hanging on to, those things that have become the ultimate thing in our life that has taken your place. We want to lay those down today so that you can wash them away and so that what we can be left with is just you. Because Lord Jesus, there is no other God. There is no rival. There is no greater power. There is no one like you. No one has given everything for us and died for us and risen for us. No one has loved us. No one has had mercy on us and compassion on us. No one has healed us or transformed us other than you. So Lord, today, would you capture our hearts once again? Would you bring our hearts back from our adultery and idolatry and back into a relationship with you as you bring your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness over us as we offer and confess our idols to you in Jesus' name?